Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ruben Amrasingram, CEO and founder of Pieces, a company connecting care providers to actionable data, people to services, and caseworkers to information. Ruben and I discuss the evolution of AI in care delivery, the importance of thinking holistically about each patient, and what he and his company took away from being part of AWS's inaugural healthcare accelerator. Enjoy. Dr. Ruben Amrasingram, CEO and founder of Pieces. Thanks for joining me today. Joe, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. To start off, can you tell us about Pieces and what you all do? Pieces is a healthcare AI firm, and we support decision-making across the care journey for patients, starting anywhere from in the hospitals to ambulatory environments, but also into the community. And the goal of our software and the services we provide is to improve outcomes, increase safety, and increase the joy and reduce the stress that's involved in taking care of patients. And that's our goal. Ruben, why you? Why are you part of the team that founded this company? There was multiple threads and influences that kind of led to this work. And so it's been exciting to see and blessing to see how the work could come together like this. I grew up, my, my mom was a social worker. My dad was a physician and there was, there, there was a lot of interest from my parents on what's the right ways to think about underserved populations. There is the sort of medical ethic. Both of those things we work on at pieces. And then I grew up coding and having a computer science background and then working on biomedical research and scientific methods. And in the course of that, got heavily into health services research in medical school, where sort of the intersection of epidemiology, biostatistics, and the medical care for the underserved. It was an interesting element. And in my second year of medical school, worked on a database project that was looking at what were the reasons and, and clinical backgrounds of homeless populations in Dallas, trying to understand did Parkland Hospital, which was the main teaching hospital at the University of Texas where I was going to medical school, could we understand better the clinical and epidemiologic background of the homeless population we're serving. And I, it was a really eye-opening moment of bringing together all these different threads. There's a huge social work and, and case manager component to that work. You, there's a lot of data to try to understand these populations. And you could see how the data could impact how you would allocate and provide care. We were able to uncover a lot of findings that ended up changing the way the care was delivered by this, the Parkland Health and Hospital Homeless Program. And I really got turned on to the idea of data technology and the allocation organization of care, particularly around vulnerable populations. And so after I finished my training in internal medicine, did a fellowship at Johns Hopkins under a program sponsored by the Robert Johnson Foundation, which has which essentially allows you to study whatever you want. And I was able to take this forward and look at how do you model populations moving through the clinical environments? Um, and with a particular focus of 
vulnerable populations and that sort of work that kind of led to uh, building risk adjustment models and predictive models to understand what's going to happen to an individual next. And in the course of building these kinds of predictive models, started looking at, hey, can we build these predictive models in real time using electronic medical record data? And can we start, do we need to start looking at factors that aren't typically looked at, like social determinants? Because when you start looking at vulnerable populations, there's a lot of social determinants that could more impact their care. And fast forwarding to today, we had that research work had developed. I was the I was a, became a went into academic medicine, returned to Texas and started building more models that could try to improve care. And that resulted in software that initially was really meant for research purposes. And we named the software pieces and we deployed it at Parkland Hospital here in Dallas and work with University of Texas Southwestern. And at a certain point in that journey, we realized the software come to a point where we could potentially use it beyond the research setting. And I'm sure we'll talk more about what the software does, but we then started pieces and it's been really the culmination of all these threads starting way back of how do you care for populations? What are the best ways to do it? How do you bring data to that? And can you bring the social work and medical ethos to the work. That answers some of my questions, knowing the product a bit. And I would love to dig in more about the yeah. specific use cases and who you're selling to and what they're usually bringing it in for. But one at the top of that, one aspect is you really serve those multiple constituencies within healthcare across the, the care delivery pathway, including some groups that don't usually um, avail themselves or are not usually part of the targets for health tech startups. You talked about social workers, case managers, all the people that are anybody who's ever worked in a hospital know are critical to getting people discharged to the appropriate level of care, regardless of what their resources are, but even more so if they're from a vulnerable patient population. Is there is there a common thread that brings all that together? Or is it just you, what you've seen in your life and your clinical experience and the rest of the folks on the team? But what's the common ground there for all those different groups coming into the pieces universe? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I think it is what I've seen across my life working with these various groups. But the common thread to me is there's that kind of cliched statement of it takes a village. But I actually think that statement best encompasses what's really need, needed for health. For any given individual, there's a lot of different factors outside of the healthcare environment and inside the healthcare environment that's going to ultimately impact their health. And I think if we don't link these together carefully and thoughtfully, meeting these different uh, constituencies where they are, you can't make really significant progress. And so I think the overall goal has been when we're thinking about a patient maintaining their health or restoring their health, how do you link all those threads and groups together around the patient? And, and to me, that's where it all comes together. Let's talk about use cases and the, how the product suite has evolved. Because I know with those multiple constituencies, you're touching a lot of different parts of the system and bringing it together. 
Talk me through the early days with the product suite. I know you have a lot of different aspects that come together within pieces, but what were the first products you brought out? What was your initial use case? And then woven into that, who's buying it? Who are the customers for this? And what have you seen be the most impactful hook for them to start working with pieces as a company? Okay. One of the great benefits that we had is we were able to work on the kind of progenitor work or the precursor work before we became pieces at Parkland Health and Hospital System in a kind of a research environment. And the first main goal at that time was back in 2007 to 2009, we were looking at uh, could we identify individuals that were at high risk for rehospitalization or readmission? At the time, it hadn't had necessarily the attention it does now. And, it, and we have, we've now gone through three generations of approaches to readmissions across the industry, not just at the software level. But our goal was to say, at Parkland, can we identify people while they're in the hospital that have a high risk for readmission and then be able to start applying resources to those folks, which is now a standard practice in almost every healthcare environment. It had a couple of requirements. It needed to be able to be actionable. It needed to be real-time. It needed to be accurate. And so we realized that there's increasing electronic data. At the time, there was a, a great push in the mid-2000s to, to get everything digitized. And EMRs were coming up and become really distributed across the United States. So the question was, could we take the data out of those systems and make predictions. And so the first goal was just building relatively simple statistical models to, that could be run in real time. So the patient's in the hospital and we're receiving data and we can we predict this person as a much more significant risk. As we did that work, in terms of thinking about the evolution, I'll get into who, who buys it and how the products we evolved. But as we did that work, we realized that we, by using clinical factors from, that we could identify from the medical record, we achieved a certain level of predictive performance. So we could say, this person has heart failure, this is their age, this is what's happened them clinically. And we could say, oh, we can predict with this level of accuracy, but we kept hitting a ceiling. And then we started to notice some patterns that if we looked at non-clinical factors, these social determinants, the model performance improved dramatically. And there were creative ways to model the social determinants. Like, for example, there were secondary reflections of social determinants. Mm -hmm. If a person's home address changed five times, somebody wasn't saying housing instability, but the fact that they had five different addresses in the EMR over one year suggested housing instability. So you could start reverse modeling all of these different social determinants. And we found that the performance of our ability to understand what might happen to this individual dramatically improved. That was a big aha moment because I was taking care of patients at the same time. And I saw these patients where as a physician, you'd see, this is going to be a really difficult case because I can see right away from both the clinical and social determinants, how are we going to do it? And I think every clinician that's worked in an in inner city hospital has seen some of these things and everybody recognizes it. It's true across, now we recognize it across healthcare environments, rural environments, urban environments, everywhere. But at the time, we were, most of the modeling was really focused on just clinical factors. And so we were able to get good predictive performance. But then the next question that was asked was, I, you've identified someone as very high risk. You can even tell me some of the factors. But I'm a busy physician. I'm a busy 
nurse, what am I going to do about that? What do you do with it? Yeah. What do I do with that? Right. Because that things are very actionable. So we were able to show in peer reviewed research that building these predictive, these programs based on predictive modeling could improve readmission outcomes. And we were very proud of that. We published that. But it naturally led to, well, if you identify someone that's very high risk and you see these social determinants, are there groups in the community that could help you with those patients so that there's an actual effector limb, there's an actual action I can take? I see. And uh, that to me was crystallized in an actual patient where the situation occurred. And I realized we need to make connections with these communities. And that resulted in our product evolving into the community space. All the pieces, so to speak, (laughs) together really neatly in a way that makes a lot of sense, in part because my own clinical experience lines up in that timeline where we weren't calling it social determinants of health, but we were thinking about can a patient get home from the hospital? I practice in New York City. So can they, yeah. do they have subway fare? Do they have a place to go? Can they get food? Yeah, Nobody ever called it, right? right? Yeah, they never yeah. called it no social determinants it. health, yeah. but we all had to gut yeah. instinct about that. And I think one of the great limitations for any social determinants program is exactly as you said, what do you do with it? You're on the hook for it then. And it seems like you've really found an actionable way to use that information and serve it back. Back to that customer question, who are your target customers now? Yeah, so our target customers, and I think this will continue to evolve across the United States, how these kind of informal networks come together of hospitals and non-clinical environments. But we have health systems that purchase our software, both for the predictive modeling elements I talked about, and that's also evolved. And then we have community-based organizations that purchase our network software and work with the health systems. And we have food banks, housing organizations. We have now universities and middle schools and school systems. And they use our software to, as a sort of a case management platform to help manage the people under their care, so to speak. And the advantage of our system is that you can make a referral depending on what the need is, what the non-clinical need is, you can make a referral into the community. And then we have community organizations that are using our software that receive that referral and can help take care of the individuals. So the ultimate loop of care that we're trying to create, the patient journey that we're trying to create is, if you're in the health system, in the inpatient ambulatory environment, our AI system will help identify both clinical and non-clinical needs. If you have a clinical need, that's addressed in the health system. If you have a non-clinical need, you can use our software to then make a referral to these community organizations that use our software to help manage their clients for their needs. And you're starting to create a full pathway in and out of the health system environment. That, and that's been our goal for the last several years now. I'm impressed as you go through this about how much it aligns with the way you actually see and discharge patients in a inpatient setting, particularly in a, in an urban setting, but everywhere I'm sure has those same challenges. Could you have founded this product and laid it out that way? If you didn't have that view from the inside as part of the pieces, DNA of the company. It was very personal in terms of my experience and maybe the limitations of my experience. There were a lot of thoughts as a physician, you, you take care of a patient. We're trained to try to think of it 
taking care of them holistically, very difficult to do in practice uh, because we have primarily clinical tools at our disposal. But a lot of it is you're moving towards discharge and you want the, everything to go okay. You don't want the patient to return to the hospital. You want their clinical outcomes to improve over time. So it was a natural cadence, the natural cadence of seeing a patient, taking care of them, getting things set up and making sure that as they leave the hospital, they're getting things in the community established. That very much came from a clinical point of view. Now, since then, I am moving over into to running a company that's working with a lot of different stakeholders. My point of view has expanded dramatically. Like even if you think about what I just described in the course of my career in Arcus is it's a very kind of hospital-centric, physician-centric view. Patient comes in the hospital, patient comes in the ambulatory environment. Right. What am I doing outwards? As I've spent more time in the community, working with community organizations, seeing this from their perspective, wow, it's really interesting to see from the community's perspective, right? For they're, the, they're the starting spot. They're actually having more interaction with the individuals. In some cases, they're less empowered, right, than the health systems, less resourced. But their ability to impact these individuals can be dramatic. And I think the other very exciting thing to see is that we're now seeing the home environment becoming censored, right? It means censored in the sense of putting sensors in there and getting them smarter. So can we really truly create the village? The home environment, I think, is going to be dramatic. You know, what we can do there over time. Then you have community groups, and then you have the clinical environment. And I think over time, you could see we are now getting the ingredients for truly holistic care. I don't think we're anywhere close to it, but you're starting to see the building blocks coming from different directions. We're definitely closer, but yeah. it's a long way to go. It's a long way. You were early, not just on social determinants, but on AI in a, a clinical setting. What was that pushback that you got? Did you get pushback? I guess I should presume. Yeah. Maybe I'm too cynical about the clinical system, but did you get any pushback? It's interesting. It's really evolved. When we deployed our first predictive model into a live environment at Parkland Hospital, where we were saying in the clinical workflow, they were getting an indication of this person's at high risk for readmission, recommend these services. We started with the heart failure readmission programs. I remember distinctly that there were attending physicians. They were at the later stage of their career. They felt this was a kind of high fluting version of algorithmic care, like algorithmic medicine, just cookbook medicine, right. right? It's not a point score model, but it's a, some complicated model that's removing the doctor's input, potentially autonomy. There was some view like, you don't need that. The best clinicians bring a lot into it. What I've seen evolve is the younger generations of doctors. I actually see them as more hungry. Now, certainly the models we were developing were quite crude. The technologists advanced so much on so many fronts, but I think they're hungry for what they see on their iPhone and the anticipatory, hey, you're about to go here. Do you want right. the directions? They're like, why isn't this here in healthcare? And I think, I think it's actually swung the other way where there's more trust in automation. Now, I think that what people want is, has changed a lot too. I don't think people want traditional predictive models. I think they want AI to just get stuff done for me. And it's a big focus of where pieces is going. I think it's changed. Yeah. It's been really interesting. Where have you seen 
the growth? How have you approached growing the company as it transitioned from being something that was in-house, solving a specific problem, bringing these groups together to selling outside of the walls at Parkland and leading a company? Talk me through that transition for you as a physician, as a technologist, and then into founder, CEO. Yeah, thank you. It's been an amazing journey for me. And it's been among the hardest things, like it's up there with residency in the ICUs. Right. Uh, you know, with, <laughs> ICUs at night. That's yeah, the, like, yeah. you know, the gold and, and standard. It, yeah. Right. It's like you really stretch yourself on a lot of levels. When I grew up in the medical community, the physicians were, and they probably, it's still very much the case, top of the pyramid. There's still a, earlier on, there was command and control. I think there's much more team-based environments in healthcare right now, but you're kind of all sufficient in many ways, you know, as a clinician, and that brought its own problems, right? You can't fail and it's all depend on you. But when you're running a startup and you're out there, you absolutely need to be able to run amazing teams and delegate everything. And I think the biggest change as a doctor, you're really prized extremely specialized intelligence where you're the master of your data and you need to be just excellent. And I think to run a startup well and to run any company well, particularly startups which are different than mature companies, your specialized expertise is just one part. You need all these other individuals to come together and you have to be humble enough to take the advice, to be able to pivot. There's no clear path. Whereas medical medicine and medical school paths, it's a long stage journey where you can see the next mile marker four miles back and I'm doing this, this, and this. And then when you're there, it's like, you know, there's a pretty good structure of how you're doing it. Whereas you're completely thrown into a different environment with the startup. And it's really stretched me that way, emotionally, mentally. The things that I really brought with me is I don't think we should try to master other domains. We should bring what we bring, which is our clinical view. That was hard won. Taking care of patients for a decade for me was a really rich experience. And even though I love coding, I love machine learning and predictive modeling, I trained in that. The thing that I try to bring to work every day is the clinical background and the experience of being a provider and understanding all that. And when I bring that and then I surround the team with all the other different things, that's when I do best as a CEO. But the other thing is when you're a founder, you're going to others for investment, you're, you're trying to sell big health systems who have very long and deliberative processes of buying technology. And I was associate chief of medicine at Parkland. It was a great position, very stable. There was a lot of teams and stuff. At right. When you're a startup, you're on the opposite side. So it, it, it really, it, you're on the totally opposite side. I was hearing vendors before, now you're a vendor going out. But I think... But that's been wonderful. It's really, it's made me, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I love the job because I'm so excited every day and I can see the possibilities. But it's also, I think you have to change your viewpoint and be as humble as possible while being, you still got to be declarative and optimistic and move forward. It really is recognizing your position in the medical ecosystem as being one little tiny cog within the whole thing. That's been really interesting. I would be remiss if I didn't highlight one part of your growth story, which is being part of the inaugural class for the AWS Healthcare Accelerator. Talk a bit about that experience. What was that like? It was the first time we had done it and we've done a few subsequently, but what was that experience like for you and the pieces team? It was a tremendous uh, 
value-added experience for us. We were very grateful to have been selected and to participate. The highlights on a number of fronts are, one, well, being able to interact with people like you, Joe, and obviously you have an incredible background. Amazon has really brought together leaders that bring perspectives that a small company is not just going to have access to. I think one of the things that you have to do as a founder is constantly be testing your ideas and refining them and talking to people and getting your views changed while staying on your path. And I think we, we had the opportunity to expose ourselves to a lot of individuals that had incredible insights, number one. Number two, one of the most exciting parts was, had it not been for this accelerator, we would not be doing work that's kicked off in the UK. And we were introduced to health systems that were working with, or clients of AWS, that were introduced to our work and now has really taken off. And there was no way we'd have crossed the pond like that uh, without the reach of the accelerator kind of group that AWS provided. And I think the third part for me was, obviously I get a lot as a CEO of a, of a young company, interactions with people and leaders outside. But I think the way that it was structured with this particular accelerator is there was a lot of members of my team, not only just the folks that work closely with me on a day-to-day basis, but even more junior folks to interact with individuals at AWS. And that was a huge growth experience for them. Both the other accelerator companies, as well as the AWS streams. And so overall, my team of leaders and employees really were able to get a lot out of the experience as well. And so I'm really grateful for that. As a close here, I'd love to hear any advice you have for folks that are thinking about spinning up companies that introduce AI into the delivery space. It's buzzwordy, but actually having a real impact in the way care is delivered is much more limited. And you've been able to crack that. What advice do you have? What are some of the lessons learned about that journey? I do have a number of thoughts on that, but I think the key ones for me would be one, first, when you're thinking about the product, I think you can't discount how important your interoperability strategy is. The healthcare ecosystem is made up of a lot of technology platforms and services across the board that aren't going anywhere. And it doesn't matter how good your AI technology is, if it doesn't get visibility into these systems. So that means really having a good API strategy and interoperability strategy. If you have the luxury of being able to have an end-to-end platform that that users of any kind are using, that's great. But the space is pretty saturated with a lot of existing platforms. And so I think the movement of our technology era into APIs is one to be taken advantage of. And I think interoperability in healthcare is improving. So I think that needs to be a key strategy for anyone that's looking at that. It's what I would look at if I was helping a company or examining is what's their interoperability and API strategy. The second thing is when you think about AI, I think the medical establishment is a huge, I think of it almost a series of massive buildings. And it's going to be very difficult to try to transform all those buildings. I think where what needs to occur is polishing different aspects of the edifice over time. Find that one area you can fully improve with an AI innovation and really polish it well. And then I think the third thing is that I think people are not looking for more signaling. Um, They're already trying to manage an enormous amount of things in the cockpit. This is not just doctors. This is nurses, care managers, patients. Can you get AI to actually get something done for them? 
AI has been used for a lot of interpretation, for a lot of, hey, think about this, this person at risk. I think people are like, can you actually get this whole appointment done for me and I don't have to worry about it or make sure that this thing was taken care of? That's where I think AI is going to be really helpful and be adopted faster. So those are all the things on the product side. And then the last thing is if you're a doctor going into this, there's a push-pull aspect of it. Are you trying to leave medicine because of the challenges in doing it? Or is it because you really have an, just some beautiful love for it? And I think you really need to try to focus on the latter because it's not any easier. <laughs> there's a lot of challenges. <laughs> but when you come there and when you're doing it, lean into your clinical background mm. because that's what you really bring. And you don't need to be the expert in everything. We feel like that as doctors. You don't need to lean into your clinical background and, and find that real purpose. Dr. Ruben Amra Singram, thanks for joining me today. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com startups.